Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining me here today on The Communication Architect. Each week, we'll share content that will empower you to grow your personal leadership capacity through the development of communication competencies that build emotional health and relational resilience. We'll unpack some practical applications of interpersonal, intrapersonal, family, and organizational communication. And we'll connect with stories of transformation that will inspire you to achieve personal and social change. Now, let's build the scaffolding you need to become a communication architect. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn. If you're new with us, we are in a season of unpacking American education. Be sure to scroll back on my podcast for some tips on breaking free from the system, getting started on the parent-directed journey, interviews with new and lifelong homeschoolers, and a whole host of research that I hope will equip and inspire you for the road ahead. And if you have not registered yet for our state's annual homeschool conference, CHIA, Christian Home Educators Association of California, be sure to go to cheaofca.org and get registered today. That incredible event is coming up May 19th to 24th. I'll be speaking four sessions and it's going to be an incredible time of equipping, great curriculum opportunities, and a great opportunity to meet other homeschoolers and be inspired by the road that is ahead. We've been talking about the 10 toxic traits of the public school environment on the show, and we see those fruits evidenced in the generational beliefs and behaviors of our youngest students. The seeds that have been planted in the public school classroom are now sprouting their tragic fruit across the landscape of an entire generation. But thankfully, parents have been awakening over the last two years, and they are pulling their children out of these government indoctrination centers and setting them free. If you haven't heard, my new book, Outsourced, is now available in print and on Kindle. You can go to outsourcedthebook.com to order, or you can find all of my blogs, books, and podcasts at cvcu.us on the President's page. Over the last couple of weeks on the show, we've been talking about how and why homeschooling is hands down the most effective way to raise up disciples. As part of this rescue mission, we have to help parents understand their vital role in the training up of the next generation. So we're spending some time over the next few episodes talking about our developmental stages and how we can stay in tune with those needs as parents. I want to shout out first some of the churches that are stepping up into the rescue mission. Next week, Skyline Church is launching their homeschool academy in East County, which will have two locations this year in uh, starting in August, and that'll be the Lakeside and the La Mesa location. So if you're a Skyline member, make sure you check that out. We're so thankful for leaders like Pastor Jeremy who are willing to step up to the call and open their church to help rescue students from the public school system. Well done, team. Pastors, if you'd like to know more about how you can play a vital role in rescuing the next generation, go to cvcu.us, that's Chula Vista Christian University, and click the Start an Academy tab. Last week, we started a new season on developmental phases to help us better understand the unique stages that our kids go through so we can partner with their spiritual and academic growth. For example, we've talked on the show many times about age-specific needs, the season of influence we have to speak into certain aspects of development. We've talked about attachment, which is formed between the ages of zero to six, worldview formed by age 13. So we want to focus in as parents on developing the characteristics and the connections needed 
needed during their seasons. There's nothing more tragic to me than when a parent brings me their icy hearted 18 year old that's been outsourced her whole life. And the parents are hoping that one single conversation can turn that trajectory around. You know, that's not where we want to start the child rearing process. We need to pour into these developmental seasons throughout the lifespan. Remember last week we talked about Manoah, Samson's dad, and when the angel told Manoah his wife would be having a baby, Manoah asked the angel two vital questions that we must also ask. What is the manner of this child and what is his mission? Many of the families that were rescuing out of the government education system were never told to study their children or pay attention to the specific gifts and talents inherent within each one of these magnificent arrows. When I ask about their children's learning styles, they don't know. When I ask about academic bents and spiritual giftings, they're often unaware because prior to that moment, that outsourced child has been trained up by an ungodly system that turned them from a name to a number. But now, thankfully, we're seeing thousands of students awaken to their full potential because their parents have stepped up into their rightful authority in the child's life. Today, I want to talk a little bit about genes and genotypes. I'll explain more in just a moment to help us understand more about that manner and the mission of our child's development. A gene is an organized unit of chromosomes that carries instructions for making a specific type of protein, which is a chemical sequence that sustains life and development throughout the lifespan. We'll talk more about this. It's absolutely fascinating under the microscope. Humans have 46 chromosomes, 23 pairs, and one member from each one of those pairs is inherited from each parent. From the very first moment of life when those two reproductive cells become one, the zygote, that genetic information from the father is lined up with the genetic information from the mother and a new creation is formed. The genetic information on that first cell is then copied again and again, repeated in almost every cell of the body. We talked about that cellular structure, how scientifically and scripturally that very first cell directs its own growth and development, which is the definition of life or a person from day one. Cell one, if you go back a few episodes, I talk about the attack on human dignity, human life, the redefining of when life begins and when life ends. And um, you can you can learn a little bit more about the public school's assault on that when you uh, read Outsourced or when you go back through the podcast. We talked last week about that overarching theme of Psalm 139. Before there was a vocabulary that existed even for words like DNA or genotypes or phenotypes, King David found himself declaring that God had written the plans for his life before David had even entered the world. From a scientific perspective, this language is absolutely fascinating. From a scriptural perspective, it's powerfully illuminating. God's fingerprints can be found all over our biochemistry. Truly, he is the potter and we are the clay. When I was a junior, when I was in junior high, one of my friends' families took me on a vacation with her family, and the friend's mother was horrified at the amount of table salt I consumed while I was staying with them. So about halfway through the vacation, she put the salt shaker up in the highest cabinet in the kitchen. I'm not kidding, and mandated the use of a salt substitute for everybody in the house, including me. My my friends' family members were downing this salt substitute with no complaints, and I thought they were crazy. This stuff was hideous. It tasted like a mouthful of chemicals. Why? Well, what neither my friend nor, nor I knew at the time was that the ability to taste that bitter chemical substance, PTC, phenylpocarbamide, is actually genetic. I was what's called a taster, whereas my friend and her family were non-tasters. 
tasters experience the chemical as bitter with maybe a little hint of salt, but more like eating battery acid. And non-tasters experience the chemical as mostly salty. Isn't that fascinating? The taster gene is determined by this interaction between dominant and recessive genes. So non-tasting parents produce non-tasting children. About two-thirds of the population is a, a taster. You can test your own inheritance by putting some rel- getting some relatives together and having everybody taste the salt substitute. If there's a repulsive <laughs> response, then you know that uh, that you have tasters in your family. Like rolling your tongue or wiggling your ears, these genetic traits are passed along through our family of heritage. And what's, I think, most exciting about these findings is the gradual unveiling of our genetic potential. Genotypes that are seemingly hidden within us can remain undiscovered for years if they're not given the right environment for nurture and development. I once took a group of my college students on a field trip to an art studio and discovered a wonderful example of 1 Peter 4.10, which says each one of us should use whatever gift we've received to serve others. The owner of the studio told us that in her 40s, she began to have this sense that something in her life was unfulfilled. She looked around at everything she had. She saw a great marriage, healthy children, successful business, but she felt like something was missing. She shared the sense of loss with her husband and he said, well, is there anything you've wanted to do that you just haven't done yet? She thought about it for a moment and then she said, I know this might sound a little silly for a woman in her 40s to want to start painting for the first time in her life, but I do. I want to paint. So her husband bought a canvas, some painting, and she started sitting outside of her business in the afternoons over lunch, after work, just painting, just painting whatever came to mind. And she said the paint seemed to glide across the canvas. This artistic expression was welling up from somewhere deep within. After just a few practice runs, she said passerbys began to comment on her work. That's a beautiful painting. Is it for sale? Then they began offering her prices. I'll give you $50 for that, $100 for that, $500 for that painting. She and her husband went to Italy, worked to hone and refine that gift of art, and now she runs an art studio next to her original business that displays the works of gifted artists from all over the world, including her own. Know that genotype was waiting inside of her all of her life. It was a gift just waiting to be open. And our children carry those genotypes, that opportunity for expression, that giftedness, that it's our responsibility to unlock. And like the taster gene, they're hidden until expressed. From the opposite perspective, a protective environment can even prevent the expression of a negative genotype. The Bible explains that we're born into sin. This is the New England primer used to remind school children in our country before public schools took over all of the Christian content. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. The Bible speaks of this concept of generational sin in Exodus 34, 7, where the sins of the fathers may be handed down from generation to generation. This is genotype behavior. Of course, we're we're also given personal responsibility for the way we respond to our life situations, but current research is demonstrating that the environment plays a powerful role in releasing or inhibiting genetic potential. So the people that our children spend time with during the day influences their behavior. We've talked about that many, many times. One area of study is centering on what's been referred to as the warrior gene. Maybe you've heard of this, MAOA gene. It's an, it's, it's an underscoring a propensity for violent behavior. Now, that's not to say that the, the, the enzyme itself 
itself directly causes violence, but it does appear to play a contributing role. One researcher notes that it's unlikely that genes directly code for violence. Rather, this variation is responsible for individual differences in cognitive functioning that in turn may determine differential predispositions to violent behavior. One of the leading researchers on the MAOA gene says that about a third of men inherit this version of MAOA, and there are different types of variations. But uh, Kathleen Stassenberger, who's a developmental psychologist, developmentalist, she says that in families where the environment exacerbates the conditions surrounding the gene, like child abuse, neglect, profound rejection, this associated expression of the warrior gene becomes pronounced in that social environment. But in a nurturing environment where children are supported, encouraged, appropriately disciplined, that gene can be present biologically, but never expressed sociologically. That nurturing gene and that nurturing environment plays a significant role in determining the expression of the gene. Fascinating, right? Humans are biochemical creatures, but we're also sociological creatures. We're not just chemically compelled robots. Our biochemistry and our environment, our nature and our nurture work in tandem with each other. As children of an omnipotent creator, we've been granted this opportunity to choose life or death, blessing or cursing. Deuteronomy 30, 19 says, this day I call heaven and earth as witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. Though we're certainly influenced by genetics, we are also powered by choice. And like Paul, some of us may have a thorn in the flesh that we've inherited in our genome to contend with as we persevere in an imperfect fallen world. But this is so important for us as parents because the environment that our children are in, if they are being raised by a literal generation of peers rather than parents, uh, if they are being socialized by corrupt children, <laughs> they are never going to reach their full maturity. Let's go back to some of that research by Nabor and Matei that talk about the, the requirements for maturity. They're not peer-driven, they're parent-driven. In the Western mode of human development, we often think of change as linear, especially in our demanding, frenetic culture. But growth sometimes manifests in more like a two steps backwards, one step backward, two step forward, one step backward trajectory. If you think of a spiral mode of development rather than a perfectly linear approach, that can be helpful. If you're seeking growth in the fruits of the spirit in your children, for example, do you see an overall trajectory of improvement in their behavior? No, looking at that objective, that behavioral objective, do we see it displayed more often, more regularly, more naturally, more organically? Or do our children, you know, is there, is their line of development just flat? So we want to see those, those trajectories of growth, even though there may be days where they fall back into a certain behavior. Overall, that trajectory should be moving upward. We don't, we're, we're not, sinless, though Jesus does call us to aim for holiness, but we should see see our children sinning less as they move through the process of Christian growth and development. 
Those early years especially represent this vital foundation for biosocial, spiritual, emotional health. Social science and neuroscience are just beginning to understand the rapid brain growth, the emotional patterns that are set in that first few years of life. Attachment, which we talked about last year, this chemical process, this release of the bonding hormone oxytocin, all of this understanding, the biology, the hardwiring into our biochemistry, this, this helps us to be better parents. Remember developmentalist uh, Jean Piaget, we talked about his how frustrated he was with Americans' desire to rush through the early childhood phases to push children to grow up instead of allowing them to blossom instead of allowing things like play-based learning, we're making them multiply fractions at age four. Within uh, within our next few episodes, we'll talk a little bit more about the unique ways how God has wired parents to care for their young and the beauty of that healthy parent-child attachment. I know if you're a parent of a young child right now, you might be in the phase of sleepless nights and dirty diapers. And um, those early years, though, are a time of great love and joy and transformation and the changes that are taking place inside the infant's body and brain aren't always visible to the eye, but neuroscience confirms that these early years are a time of extraordinary development. Like Moses's mother, we also need to see that we've been given what he called no ordinary child, whether that's present or future, and that our extraordinary children deserve extraordinary care, extraordinary stewardship. My friend Denise Mira, who's the author of the book, uh, No Ordinary Child, says, revelation often comes through the door of offense. You know, the crafty plan of culture might not line up with the created plan of the king. The lure of selfishness can attempt to topple the sacrificial love that's required of parenting. To the untrained eye, the early years may seem like kind of a blip on the timeline, a blur of sleepless nights and a multiplication of mountains of laundry. But these first two years are an absolutely vital foundation to a child's development. We can't see it yet, but inside this tiny baby, a genetic code is unfolding. It's launching the child into a destiny that we as parents will either help or hinder. And as you'll see in our next few weeks of discussions, this this transformation in the first two years is absolutely remarkable. It might not seem grandiose as you're changing dirty diapers or waking up from a deep sleep for a 3 a.m. feeding, but destiny is churning in the heart of that child. As Zechariah 4.10 says, do not despise these small beginnings for the Lord rejoices to see that work begin. And I've shared before that many parents of young children tell me that they feel like the the social pressure is that the only milestone they're supposed to bring their children through is potty training, and then they're supposed to outsource them to someone else. And of course, that's completely unbiblical. We don't see that anywhere in scripture. The book of Malachi tells us that God brings together two people, a man and woman, for the purpose of godly offspring. Direct quote. Speaking of the married couple, Malachi writes in verse 315, has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. God has his eye on the next generation. And as the creator of the universe, he designed men and women to live together in a committed marriage relationship to raise children in the context of a family that would serve as the mirror of our heavenly family. Now, I know this is not a popular topic from postmodernists who've been conditioned to believe that the world is overpopulated and marriage is a relic of the past. One of our friends is a missionary who often finds themselves in a country where this ide- ideology has been played out. 
Uh, places like Bolivia, where the decline in marriage has resulted in a decline in childbearing, which, if that trajectory doesn't change, will result in the disappearance of their culture in 90 years, right? Let that soak in. I know I've talked before about the overpopulation myth, but it bears repeating. Creation Astronomy's Fifth fifth Day Alliance uh, phenomenal work have this great mathematical calculation where they show that every living person on the planet today could fit in 1,000 square foot homes in the state of Texas, leaving the rest of the world completely empty. We are not overpopulated. So when God calls together two godly people, he calls them to be fruitful and multiply. This most enduring and important story of birth in the Christian faith, of course, Jesus, his journey into the world of humanity. Bible scholars say Mary was maybe 13, which is not unusual for the culture, the period. And there are some unique narratives about her experience and the uterine, the intrauterine development of the baby Jesus. When you remember when Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth and Elizabeth's baby, John, the Baptist leaps in her womb in the presence of the Lord. Now, this supernatural experience, notwithstanding, of course, this moment a child moves in a recognizable way in the mother's womb is for many a moment of awakening. One of the most awe-inspiring moments of life is that miracle of children being brought into the world. Certainly in modern culture, the wonder can be overlooked. But as we talk about some of these remarkable transformations from conception to creation, I, I pray that you will marvel at the work of God's hand in your own life and the lives of your children. Each one of us has a set of chromosomes that we contribute to the child. And when that male gamete, female gamete, the reproductive chromosomes meet, a brand new life is sparked into being. And this is a holy moment. We could say we have to take off our proverbial sandals because we're standing on holy ground. A human life has been created. At that moment, unbeknownst to the mother and father, a new life, a child of promise and purpose created in the image of a holy God has been given as a precious gift to this family. And though the parents will be unaware of this for many days, many weeks, God has already written the destiny of this child, the genetic code. It's already been provided this, these physiological resources for this child to one day continue that generational addition by becoming a parent as well. As King David said in Psalm 102, 18, let this be written for the next generation that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. This zygote, that first human cell, then begins to duplicate itself, dividing the cells into unique structures according to genetic calling. Once the cell structure becomes distinct in terms of its cellular differentiation, the cell is now called a blastocyst. And then a few weeks out, about a week after conception, that blastocyst separates into two segments. Listen, I know this is wild, but the placenta and the embryo, and I know you probably have never heard the word placenta on a radio show, uh, the pl- but that placenta actually becomes a unique organ organ in the mother's womb that's assigned to provide protection and nourishment to the developing baby. Come on, that is unbelievably miraculous. About 10 days after conception, that blastocyst has to engraft into the uterus and then um, implant itself. And a lot of researchers say about 60% of those blastocysts don't implant successfully and are aborted by the body. I know as parents and thinking Christians, we don't have an answer for why some of the babies develop and some don't, or for why some parents conceive and others don't. But we do know that God is sovereign. He sees all of life from a perspective far more broad than our human capacity. 
will permit us to see or comprehend. And there are times where we have to stay in what Maya Angelou once called the unasked and unanswerable questions. And in those moments, we choose to trust God's character and his goodness. And despite the situation we find ourselves in next week, I'll talk a little bit more about that and share a little of my own testimony on that topic too. Now, it may have been a few years since you read or talked about this aspect of human development, but let's stay with the topic and the process for a moment as we marvel at the design of our children. Next week, we're going to bring these concepts together and look at what's being taught about the devaluing of lives in the government school system. May we continue to marvel at this miraculous work, and may we continue to seek Him for the manner and the mission for which our children were created so that we can guide those arrows to greatness. Please don't forget to check out my latest book, Outsourced and the 12 toxic traits of the public school system, just go to outsourcedthebook.com to order. Or you can find all of my blogs, books, and podcasts at CVCU, that's Chula Vista Christian University, on the president's page. You can contact us at cvcu.us as well for bulk purchase discounts. If you're new to the show or you're homeschooling for the first time, you can catch all my episodes on my podcast. Just scroll back for some episodes, interviews, tips of the trade, and be sure to check out what we're accomplishing here in San Diego at Chula Vista Christian University. Just go to cvcu.us where you'll find helpful tools for support, community, and engagement. And if you are a pastor anywhere in America, please DM me for help on getting your church active in the homeschool support realm. If we all work together as parents and local churches, we can absolutely shift the trajectory for the next generation. Again, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks again for joining me here today on our show. I'll be back next week with more of our toxic trait analysis and some developmental tips that will help you stay connected through the lifespan. See you then. Thanks again for joining us here on The Communication Architect. If you have questions about today's episode or if there are topics you'd like to see us address, send your comments via Instagram to at Dr. Lisa Dunn or via email to contact at drlisadunn.com. That's D-R-L-I-S-A-D-U-N-N-E.com. And remember, strategic communication will help you build greater emotional health and relational resilience. So don't miss the next episode. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and I look forward to talking with you next time right here on The Communication Architect.